0: Protests across Syria by people animated by many grievances, but united in a single desire. An end to the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad. And at this point, we should probably reassure listeners that they have not tripped through some wormhole in the space-time continuum and arrived in 2011. It was, of course, similar protests, more accurately the brutal response of the Assad regime to those protests, which saw Syria consumed by war, a war which, despite its drift from the headlines, has not ended. Earlier this year, a report by the Syrian Network for Human Rights assessed the casualties of this conflict. Of Syria's pre-war population of around 21 million people, it reckoned that more than 600,000 had been killed, including 162,000 civilians, perhaps 154,000 more arrested or disappeared, and 13 million displaced. Though Assad endures, so does the war, a war which has not only splintered Syria among varying factions, tribes and or jihadist groups, but drawn in several other countries. Within the last week alone, military actions of varying intensity have been undertaken inside Syria by Russia, Israel, Iran, the United States, Jordan and Turkey. Is Syria's long ordeal anywhere near an end? Do we have to get used to the idea that Assad has won, more or less? And what is driving this fresh wave of protests? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: The economy is absolutely dire. In the spring, it was 7,000 Syrian pounds to the dollar. It's now 15,000. So we're really seeing a free fall. Of the Syrian economy. And of course it was 70 Syrian pounds to the dollar before the civil war. So people are utterly destitute.
2: You cannot unplug from Syria. Syria sits at the heart of the Middle East and the Middle East just simply is at the cross point of three continents. And so I don't see foreign interference ebbing anytime soon.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Leila Molana-Allen, Monocle's Beirut correspondent and a recent visitor to Syria. Leila, first of all, give us a sense of what amount of normal life is going on in Syria. To what extent are people able to forget that there was a war and indeed still is a war?
1: It completely depends where you are. So I went all across the country, all across regime held Syria when I was there a few months ago. And in Damascus, life really continues as normal to a certain extent. Damascus wasn't heavily damaged during the Civil War anyway. It was always the Assad government stronghold. The suburbs were. So you inside Damascus, particularly in the old city, everything's absolutely fine, very clearly under the control of the government, and in a lot of the new city too. Then you suddenly walk outside of the city, you get on any of the highways, particularly north, and there's nothing. All these suburbs that we saw being bombed, full of rebels, all these places, they're just flat. There's nothing to go back to. It's not a case of rebuilding. It's dust on the floor. And all the agricultural communities who are there have disappeared. So it's almost like this little island that exists in an area of complete devastation. And then as you move further away from Damascus, that continues up in Homs and Aleppo, the road between Homs and Aleppo. I've been a, a conflict correspondent for 15 years, and it's some of the most continuous disruption I've ever seen, because this was where you had street to street, village to village, road to road battles. Every single building is completely destroyed. Once in a while, you'll see some laundry hanging from a window that indicates one person is still there. There are army tanks tucked into the parking spaces of residential apartment blocks that are collapsing. I mean, it's just absolute devastation for miles and miles and miles all across this area. And then Aleppo, of course, has a huge amount of destruction as well, and then was further destroyed by the recent earthquake too. So in terms of the legacy of the war, that's what it looks like. And then in terms of daily life, the economy really is the big thing. The economy is absolutely dire. When I was there in the spring, it was seven thousand Syrian pounds to the dollar. It's now fifteen thousand. I was back in Syria a couple of weeks ago, and it dropped between ten and thirteen thousand in the one week that I was there. So we're really seeing a free fall of the Syrian economy and of course it was 70 Syrian pounds to the dollar before the civil war so people are utterly destitute and because of a combination of bad government decisions economically and sanctions of course people can't rebuild their homes they can't start businesses because there's no international banking so financially people really are desperate there are bread queues out on the streets that's really the main challenge right now for people living in Syria.
0: Given the situation you describe, and I guess allowing for the reluctance of people in Syria to be critical of the government when they're not sure who they're talking to, what sense did you get of how people feel about the Assad regime now? Is there any kind of, I guess, positive, enthusiastic constituency for Bashar al-Assad? Any sense of gratitude to him for winning this war, as people may see it?
1: I was actually amazed how open people were about speaking about it. And it was more a case of me wanting to protect people and not have them, you know, publicly get themselves in trouble. Rather, people were very open, very keen to talk about it. One thing is there's certainly a sense that, you know, he has protected them for sure. The second thing that's very interesting is how well the propaganda has worked. So there's no such thing as a rebel in regime held Syria, they're terrorists, everyone's a terrorist. People don't know the difference between ISIS or Javad al-Nusra or the Free Syrian Army or a university teacher who later became radicalized. There's no difference between any of these things. They are 100 percent all terrorists and it's the terrorists trying to attack them. Now, when I went down to the south, uh, south of Damascus, it was very interesting. That's right near Sweda, where these protests are currently happening. We couldn't go to Sweda because was did have problems. But we went to Basra, which is a town that until very recently was still occupied, and we went in and there were, pre-Syria now this different flag, the flag of the rebels, flags painted still all over the walls because it had been so recent. And they sort of said, don't look at that, don't take photographs of that, that's not real Syria. But they were talking about how the whole narrative is that in this area, the locals try to protect Syrian government nationality there against the terrorists outside, rather than the fact that this was a rebel stronghold. You know of Syrians who were were fighting. So again, that's sort of completely believed not by the older generation. The older generation obviously understands a little bit more because there used to be a lot more freedom of information. But certainly, the younger generation really do buy that, and that's very interesting. A lot of the frustration, as I say, really is economic at the moment. They feel that Assad should be engaging more with the West because he's not prioritising their needs. He's prioritising political objectives. There's a lot of concern that Iran completely dominates the country militarily and economically, and Russia to a certain extent as well. But there's definitely more frustration at Iran, and I think that's because they are a regional power rather than an outside power. But that was spoken about a lot. But what they're very unhappy about is the fact that they just want to move forward from the war now. They really want the country to just get back together, and they're not really concerned politically how that happens. They just want progress. They want their lives back.
0: But just on that thought of getting the country back together... How much faith do you detect across what we used to think of as Syria, which is now effectively partitioned in several different chunks, that that will ever happen, that there will ever again be one Syria as we thought of it in 2011?
1: So Turkey is the absolute crux of this. What Turkey decides to do will determine the future of Syrian territory. Before the earthquake at the beginning of this year, that enormous earthquake in February, we were waiting for a Turkish invasion of northern Syria. That now looks like it's not going to happen. Erdogan has stepped back. Essentially, both Assad and Erdogan seem to be using the humanitarian crisis of the earthquake, the fact that the world has turned around and started giving more aid, etc. again, to try and broker a settlement. Now, Turkey wants to hold on to northwest Syria. That's the rebel-held area. They've been building areas there to send Syrian refugees back to, and their backed militias run that whole area. They want to hold on to that. Now, there is potentially a future in which Assad allows that to happen so that he's not facing having to continually try and kill all those people because he can't let them go anywhere. But Turkey's in charge of it and Turkey cracks down on any rebel activity there. That's a possibility if they do make a deal. Northeast Syria, where the Kurds are in control, the Americans are still supporting the Kurds in that area, but increasingly less. I was just there and they are very, very worried. They've got threats on every side. They've got the Turks uh, shelling and drone striking on one side. They've got the Assad regime on another side. Then they've got the Russians there. The Americans are increasingly pulling out. So, And because of the oil again, it looks more and more likely that they might start to lose more territory there. So theoretically, there is a future in which Turkey pushes down further across all of northern Syria and is running things in those areas, gets some of that oil in the Kurdish areas as well. Assad pushes up a little bit and the people in between just get squeezed between a rock and a hard place.
0: Layla, thank you. That was Monocle's Beirut correspondent, Leila Molana-Allen. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. <laughs> This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Firas Maksad, Senior Fellow and Director of Outreach at the Middle East Institute and Adjunct Professor at George Washington University. And we're also joined by Dr. Lina Khatib, Director of the SOAS Middle East Institute and Associate Fellow at the Chatham House Middle East and North Africa Programme. Lina, let's start with you. These protests, which are more or less the hook for... For this episode, do comparisons with 2011 help us in the slightest?
3: The comparison is that both protests quickly escalated to ask for the fall of the regime, meaning the protests may have been sparked by economic concerns, but they quickly transformed into being about political concerns. But the key thing is that, unlike 2011, when Suweda, the area that is witnessing most of the protests in Syria today, at that time in 2011, Suweda did not protest calling for the fall of the Assad regime. Whereas now, Suweda is seeing masses of people making exactly that demand.
0: There has to to narrow the focus on this a little bit, Is there a reason why Suweda would be a a focus for a a renewed wave of discontent with Assad? Yes,
2: absolutely. A bit of background here is in order. Sweda is the predominantly Druze province of southern Syria, Druze being an offshoot of Islam. And has a very sort of particular community and situation related to it. It's a very compact group, and the Assad regime has been careful, unlike it's dealing with other areas of the country not to be overly tough-handed in its dealing with it. So what we've seen is, yes, Sueda shares a lot of the economic concerns, the economic and social distress. And as Lena correctly pointed out, also the political grievances shared in the rest of Syria. But Assad treads more carefully there. And that's allowed Sueda more leeway to voice and react to the latest fuel hikes that the Assad regime announced about just over two weeks ago now. And so the economic distress was the spark and Swaida has more of a leeway and its people are a bit more comfortable taking to the streets, but yes, those are shared concerns across Syria. And I think, you know, Assad is very worried about the contagion effect to other parts of Syria, too.
0: Just to follow that up, Firas, if Assad is concerned about contagion and is concerned about these protests, would it be reasonable to anticipate that he might respond much the way he did 12 years ago, i.e. with merciless brutality, which started the uh, momentum towards war rolling?
2: Well, I think uh, even essa tends to learn over time. And it's very clear that that's not their preference. That might be sort of the the last tool in their arsenal, but they're going back to the playbook of trying to coax and co-opt. And what we've seen over the last eight or nine days of protest is an attempt to create division within the Druze leadership within the province. And certainly trying to take aim at some of the religious leaders and bring some of them on board on the regime side. And they've had some success in the last 24 to 48 hours peeling one of the three main religious leaders of the truce towards the regime side. And there's also so playing on divisions within the community in Florida, although the community is quite compact and the sentiment is pretty strong But then also using ethnic divides and there's an Arab component, a tribal Arab component to the province and historically there's been grievances between the Druze and some of those tribal Arab communities. And so we see the regime again trying to utilize these divisions. And lastly, threatening the return of the threat of ISIS and the threat of Sunni extremism and sort of bringing forward the role of the regime as the first line of defense for community against Extremist Sunni groups. So these are the various tactics that the regime is trying to use right now to co-opt and calm the protest. I think they will not use direct force unless they absolutely have to because of that threat of contagion.
0: At which point, Lena, we should consider the figure at the centre of events, which extraordinarily is still President Bashar al-Assad. And I think probably at this point, about 12 years ago, few would have imagined that he would still be in charge in Syria today. But there he is at this point. Whether we like it or not, do we have to acknowledge that he is more or less now secure and that there is no real reason why he shouldn't carry on being president of Syria?
3: Nothing is secure in the Syrian situation. Assad has so far won the conflict militarily, but his position is very precarious because of the decaying financial situation in Syria. A figure close to the regime once was saying in a private setting not too long ago that even if sanctions on Syria are lifted, it's going to be very difficult for Syria to bounce back. So even people in the regime's kind of outer circle are acknowledging that this is a hollow victory at the end of the day. And that also means that if circumstances were to shift as a result of changes externally in geopolitics or as a result of, for example, widespread uh, protests all over Syria, let's say, the regime's capacity and infrastructure are very different today from how they were in 2011. So we can't necessarily say just because he survived then and he's still here now, we're going to see another 12 years of Assad in power in the same way. So the situation can shift.
0: Just to pick up a bit on that further, Lena. Is there any possible, I guess, further upside, as Assad would see it, from where he now is? Can he reasonably hope at any point to be once again president of all of Syria, as it might have looked on the map in 2011?
3: This is becoming increasingly unlikely. The area in the northwest is unlikely to ever want to be back under the control of the Assad regime. Not too long ago, a few days ago, uh, there was an attack by one of the extremist jihadist groups still operating in that area. Against Assad army forces, mainly targeting the fourth division, which is led by Assad's own brother, Maher al Assad. And that area hadn't seen an attack like that since, I think, at least 2016. And that attack was something unexpected. And when it comes to Sueda, we are seeing, you know, again, dynamics that show that even if the regime is in charge, it doesn't mean that everybody under the regime umbrella, is happy with that control. And meanwhile, you have the northeast, which has its own cocktail of interests. And that's not to mention areas controlled by Turkey in the north as well. All these areas are not likely to just accept being handed back to the regime very easily. So I I don't think Assad's dream of being the president of all of Syria's geographical regions is going to be realized anytime soon. Because
0: Firas, one of the dimensions to this conflict that has developed over the last 12 years is the extraordinary number of overlapping projected interests from well, not just neighbouring powers, but powers from as far away as Russia and the United States. And as well as them, we, we've seen regular air raids by Israel on targets in Syria. Turkey, as Lina was saying, are still very much involved. And there's this story emerging this week of Jordan bombing factories in the south of the country, which are manufacturing this drug Captagon, which appears to have taken the Middle East by storm. Do you see Firas, and we'll talk about some of these individual international interests, but do you see any prospect of any of those countries thinking at any time soon well, we've made our point in Syria, we've, we've served our interests, we've got what we wanted, we're going home?
2: Well, frankly, I don't see it, but let me first say that I'm, I'm trying hard to find a point of disagreement between Lena and I just for the benefit of the listener to make it more interesting. But I do very much agree with her point that Assad is unlikely to regain control over all of the territories of Syria anytime soon. If anything, what we're seeing with the events in the southern province of Sweida is further fragmentation. And she's precisely right that any of these communities that get the chance to flee away from regime control will take that chance in a heartbeat. And Assad simply does not have the resources at hand to keep what he has, let alone reestablish control over large swaths of Syria. But then you have that complicating factor of foreign interests and foreign influence with you know, Turkey in the Northeast, the US in the Northwest, Jordan having strong interest, historical interests in southern Syria with the Druze community, but even more so now when you alluded to these attacks against drug manufacturing factories. I mean, the Assad regime has turned the country into a narco state. With the absence of access to foreign reserves and foreign currency, the regime, and particularly the fourth division, which Lena referenced, the brother, Maher al-Assad, have been manufacturing and shepherding the drug trade, which is flooding Arab Gulf countries for the South through Jordan. Jordan becoming a transit state, but also increasingly a lot of these drugs finding themselves into Jordanian society. But Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, all being on the receiving end of tons and tons of drugs being manufactured by the Assad regime. So you cannot unplug from Syria. Syria sits at the heart of the Middle East. If you look at the map, it sits at the heart of the Middle East. And the Middle East just simply is at the cross point of three continents. And so for all these reasons, I don't see foreign interference ebbing anytime soon. Now, I do wanna make one point if you allow me. We cannot talk about what's happening in Syria today without mentioning the renewed push to normalize relations with the Assad regime. There has been a particularly Arab-led push under the pretext of sort of the time of the Arab uprising, that decade that started in 2011 is behind us coming to a close. The idea of democracy flourishing in the Arab world has no evidence and has failed in every country so far. And there might be some credence to that argument. The argument that also goes on to put forward good governance as a model rather than necessarily a Jeffersonian representative democracy. And one has to say there is nothing about the Assad regime that makes you think of good governance and so to normalize with Assad under the pretext of democracy not having a place in the arab world and having failed i think is a failed approach and what we're seeing in sweda i think is the first signs of evidence that this normalization process is doomed to go nowhere
0: Lena, looking at those foreign players again, though, perhaps from a slightly different perspective, whether it's Israel or Russia or Turkey, Iran, Lebanon, the United States and anybody else that has a chunk of Syria at the moment... Does it strike you that any of these players have a desired outcome in mind, an end game that they want to approach? Or have quite a few of these interventions at this point reached the we're here because we're here because we're here stage?
3: One thing to remember about all of these actors that you mentioned is that they have all been intervening in Syria because of their own interests not because they have Syria's best interests in mind. Iran, for example, needs Syria Because without Syria, it can't connect with Lebanon, where it supports Hezbollah. Likewise, for Hezbollah, Syria is very important because this is where Hezbollah used to and still trains its troops. It gets weapons sent from Iran through Syria. It manages now to also be involved in the captagon trade through Syria, Iran This way also gets to expand its presence in the Levant, if we can call the area that. Um, This is to do with Iran's own geopolitical ambitions in the Middle East. Same with Turkey. It has its own motivations for being involved, mainly to do with Kurdish issues, because it does not want to see an autonomous Kurdish region. On its doorstep. So, in a way, intervening in Syria and physically taking over border regions inside Syrian territory allows it to prevent this Kurdish buffer zone from existing, for example. And Israel's intervention is also about our concerns about this Iranian spread that I mentioned. So, every time Israel sees that Iranian Presence militarily is kind of getting a bit too close. It goes ahead and conducts airstrikes on these Iranian targets inside Syria. For Russia, Syria was low hanging fruit. It used it as a way to present itself as a superpower once more, mainly vis a vis the United States. And so when you think about all those interests, they are still very much with us. They have not shifted. And that means that the situation uh, is going to continue with this intervention in Syria. And we have to remember that for a lot of these actors, the intervention in Syria has come at a relatively low cost to them. Russia is not really uh, spending many resources for its presence in Syria. Iran and Hezbollah are benefiting because of the drug trade, for example. So again, very few things would lead me to believe that these actors are just going to say, OK, mission achieved. Now we're going home.
0: If we were to come back, let's say five years from now and make a broadly similar program, do you think there's any reason to expect or hope that anything much will have changed?
3: Anything can happen in this region. I don't think this is a region to be taken for granted. It's not game over in Syria. In five years' time, we will have seen two U.S. administrations, for example. Anything can happen there. Um, If the United States decides, for example, to completely shift its diplomatic engagement in the Middle East, especially vis-a-vis the issue of Iran's regional role, that might cause a dramatic shift in the situation in Syria. If these uh, protests in uh, Sueda somehow spread all over the country, this might also cause a shift in Syria. So there are a number of factors that lead me to believe that most likely five years from now will not look like the situation today.
0: Firas Maksad and Lina Khatib, thank you both for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, scored a significant diplomatic win earlier this year when he was invited to resume Syria's membership of the Arab League, an organisation which includes a few countries which had made efforts over the previous decade and change to remove him. But will more countries, European and or Western countries, recognise Assad once more? And should they? I'm joined now by Sir William Patey, a former British diplomat who served as the UK's ambassador to Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq and Saudi Arabia. William, first of all, how do Western governments generally go about deciding whether to re-acknowledge
4: Assad? What kind of factors will play into a decision like that? Well, I don't think there's any pressure on them to re-acknowledge him. That'd be the first thing to say. So, maintaining sanctions against him uh, would suit them because it would be in accord with, I think, public opinion, which would be very hostile to re-establishing links with uh, with Assad. The Arab League, the initiative of the Saudis, recently readmitted him not because they think Assad's a great guy, but because they're worried about the captagon trade and the drugs trade into their own countries and the previous policy of isolation hasn't been working so they're trying engagement but the western countries don't have to do that at the moment they would not think that lifting sanctions or engaging with assad would bring them much in the way of benefits it's not likely to reduce the syrian dependence on russia for both grain and political support the turks are engaged because they have to it's on their borders i suspect the only thing that would really force Western governments to re-engage is if ISIS was to become another threat in a Syria context and that then ISIS was to threaten the West, that would be an incentive for them to do something. But I can't see at the moment what pressures there would be on the West to do anything.
0: There are a few European slash Western diplomatic missions operating in Damascus, Austria, Greece, Sweden, among them. What might they perceive as the advantage of
4: being there? Well, I suspect that they're worried about the humanitarian situation. They'll be worried about the refugee crisis. That would be a particular Greek issue. I mean, at the moment, you've got I don't know how many one to two million Syrians refugees in Turkey. If the Turks were to allow them to leave, try and make their way to Europe, that would be a big problem for Greece. So Greece has certainly have has a an Eastern Mediterranean locus. The Swedes I would think it's more of a, a human rights issue, wanting to monitor what's going on. But from, say an American, French, German, or British point of view, There's not much driving them to re-engage.
0: As a general rule, though, leaving aside the specifics of the Syrian situation, when it is decided that we will once again deal diplomatically with a country we had stopped dealing diplomatically with for whatever reason, what are the practicalities of that? Who calls who? How does the relationship get re-established?
4: Well, it'd probably be done through an intermediary. I would imagine if we did want to re-establish an embassy in Damascus, well, that would be the first sign that we were re-engaging, that we would open an embassy. But that's way, way down the road. I think we'd be talking to the Turks to begin with. We'd probably use the Saudis. We have decent relations with both. And they now have relations with, with Assad. So you would go through intermediaries. You might, if you had certain demands of the Assad regime in order to re-engage you'd probably want to set up a meeting with Syrian officials outside Syria somewhere. If that would be the process by which you would do that. You were talking earlier about how the bigger
0: Western nations, the UK and the US especially, might not perceive any particular upside in re-engaging with Syria at that level to bring it back to where we came in. But might they be worried about there being a downside to leaving it to everybody else?
4: Oh, yeah, there certainly is a downside. I mean, there's a downside in the sense of the security concerns in Lebanon, the failure of a Lebanese state and the fact that the drug trade on both sides, you know, there are drug gangs, Hezbollah on one side and the the Syrian military on the other side, controlling the flow of drugs of captagon, which finds its way to Europe and to the Gulf. So that is a security concern. There's a security concern in Turkey, you know, supporting the rebels. And Western countries are still supporting the rebels up in the Northwest around Idlib, So there are concerns that the Russians are expanding their influence. They're selling stolen Ukrainian grain at exorbitant prices to the Syrians, where the Syrians pay for them by loans from the Russians. So there's a couple of sanctions pariahs there helping each other out. The Iranian influence continues to be strong in Syria. And these are all concerns of the West. And the drug flow into our friends and allies in the Gulf our concerns, security threats to Jordan. So these are all concerns, none of which I think the Western countries would think would be alleviated very much by lifting sanctions against Syria or by re-establishing relations anytime soon. I think, you know, the West would want Syria to concede something in order to lift sanctions. What that would be, it's difficult to see what the Assad regime would be prepared to concede. Sir William Patey,
0: thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.